Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Cool Sports Network. I am Chase Coburn, and today I am joined by a very special guest, a UConn commentator on ESPN Hartford Radio, Adam Giardino. Adam, welcome to the show. Chase, thanks for having me. It's uh, my favorite time of year. I can't wait. The uh, I think the general sports fan and all of us are really excited for the next couple of weeks. Yeah, I think, I think we are. This may be actually the best week in all sports, and you're able to pick your brackets, think about how great this tournament's going to be. You know, in March, you got to expect the unexpected, as Ian Eagle says, and uh, we'll definitely talk about March Madness here. But I kind of wanted to start off here. You know, how did you really get your commentating career started? When did you realize you wanted to be a commentator? And then how did you kind of transition that into college or however you kind of got to this point? It's, it's a little bit of a different landscape now as you're going to be navigating over the next couple of years from middle school into high school. My junior year of high school was when a social studies teacher who was the men's soccer coach and then another one who was the girls basketball coach that they just knew my passion for sports. And they said, hey, let's start something up here. We already filmed these games for for practice purposes. So let's plug in a mic and let you broadcast it. And Thanks to them. I mean, maybe I would have found this route eventually, but this passion started in high school for me. And from there, I went to UConn, which is a school that is uh, not necessarily known for its broadcast journalism program. It doesn't really have one, but they had incredible opportunities. They had a print journalism program. So my degree is in both journalism and communication and all the experience I got on student radio led me to be in a great spot when I graduated in 2011 and hit the ground running in minor league baseball and now really diving back into my my passion, which is college athletics. Yeah, and you have had a lot of stuff. You've been doing some stuff for ESPN Plus. You've been doing some stuff for UConn. So kind of break down over these like past, you know, so a uh, few years, kind of your whole, um, I, w- I don't want to say routine, but your whole path that, to get to right now. Yeah, my, I guess at the time in 2011, ESPN Plus didn't exist. So I graduated college. And again, where I say that your journey and path will be different than mine, um, you know, even what we're doing right now, talking on a podcast didn't exist. And so for for me graduating college, I knew, okay, minor league hockey or minor league baseball. That was really it. Because unless you were breaking in at the top of college athletics, there weren't these outlets to go broadcast some women's soccer games and field hockey and uh, men's water polo and all these things that I get to do now, there just weren't openings. This stuff wasn't being carried anywhere. So it was minor league baseball. That was absolutely my passion. I was lucky to hit the ground running there. Did 10 years in the minors up to AAA with the New York Yankees and Scranton Wilkesbury for three years. And I'm so thankful for all of that, able to cut my teeth and move back and forth from Franklin, Massachusetts to whether it was Lakewood, New Jersey, or Trenton, New Jersey, and then Scranton, Pennsylvania. Um, and again, that that opened doors for me in all the ways that you described, whether it's uh, ESPN Plus, the Ivy League on ESPN, um, Brown University, Holy Cross, Harvard, UConn, UMass, Northeastern. We're really lucky up in New England, which is where you're located as well. There are a ton of schools and a ton of Division One schools all within driving distance. So opportunities um, were certainly available for me once once these schools started putting together their streaming productions. Um, it came at the right time for me to jump in and and pick up opportunities that it's as at many of these schools as possible. Um, and even as we record this, I mean, a couple of weeks ago, I was one of the voices for the Ivy League 
in their Ivy League indoor men's and women's track and field championships up in Hanover, New Hampshire, a couple of weeks ago. So just getting in at the right time is is key, as you'll find out. And uh, there were some some places where I was able to just fall in and and really build meaningful connections and relationships that have gone on for five, seven, eight years now. Yeah, you're really lucky that ESPN Plus, and it's, it's really just been like a really great outlet, I think, for a lot of broadcasters. When you're right, there weren't a lot of outlets. It was kind of like, all right, I got to pick between baseball or hockey on a small level, hope someone notices me, and, uh, you know, kind of go from there. But, you know, I think ESPN Plus is a great outlet, not just for you, but for other broadcasters, too, that are just getting started. They have an opportunity to still commentate a game and show their skill that can actually be noticed and could be watched. So I think that's a, that that's a really great outlet now. And you did mention the two uh, New York Yankee minor league affiliates that you did uh, stop by. And I'm pretty sure you got a few championship rings along the way, uh, if I remember correctly. So kind of break down that whole experience. I got a few rings. Yeah. And, and it's funny, as we're talking about this today, I was talking to my wife and I was able to show her my Holy Cross NCAA tournament ring, because as we're recording this, um, the first four is happening today. And in 2016, I was part of the men's broadcast team for Holy Cross. And I've got a, a Holy Cross Patriot League championship ring as well, where they won four road games in the conference tournament and then beat Southern University out in Dayton. Got to travel with them to Dayton, then had to hop on a flight immediately. And we headed out to Spokane, Washington and got our lunch handed to us by 39 points by the number one seed Oregon Ducks. Um, but that was a, a an incredible experience yeah. as well. So um, you know, circling back to, to the rings on the baseball side of things. Yeah. 2013, my first year in double A with Trenton, we got all of the right, um, reinforcements because minor league baseball, I know the timeline's different now, but minor league baseball for the entirety of when I was in it, September call-ups were basically right as minor league playoffs were starting. So if the Yankees wanted to call up six guys from triple A, and their double A team and triple A teams were both in the playoffs, which they were in 2013. We had to send six of our best players up to help Scranton Wilkesbury in their playoff push. And so we ended up in Trenton getting five or six guys from the Tampa Yankees in high A that helped bolster us. But that year it was um, Gary Sanchez was one of the call-ups. He was obviously huge at that time, just a 19 year old playing in double A. He was, monumental in the playoff push a couple of pitchers Shane Green who was a closer for the Detroit Tigers um, he was a starter at the time and he was huge in the playoff run so that one um, yeah that that 2013 run was was special because even as we were losing players we had heard so much about the guys all year long in high a that you hoped once you knew which players you were losing that certain players would be coming up from high a and they were the right guys to help win those games in September Let's transfer back over here to UConn and uh, not only do you commentate uh, UConn basketball, trust me, we're going to talk about here uh, today, but you also um, do broadcast UConn football and uh, you just wrapped up your, your fifth season there. And uh, they had, they play, they did a great job this year. You know, Jim Mora seems like he's really turning the program around. They made a bowl game this year. So, you know, what do you really think is the future of this program looks like under Jim Mora? And do you think is this something they can grow off of or is this kind of a one and done kind of thing? It's interesting because I think it's very much in Jim Mora's court in terms of, you know, not that I'm starting job searching rumors, but I mean, Jim Mora had done a reasonably fine job at UCLA before getting fired there um, from a job that 
I don't know. I mean, he was, I think he was eight and four in his final year in UC in UCLA and got fired. And so when he wins uh, six games with UConn this year and everyone's patting him on the back, that was one of the things he said in the press conference was this feels weird to me because I was fired for doing worse at my previous job. So I'm motivated. I'm ready to go. And, and that's all well and true. Um, but I really do think that for Mora, um, you know, the fact that this is that if I get the sense that he is not looking to make this a a launching pad to another job, he's still young enough where that could be the case. He still might have a chance to have success at a power five school. But the fact that UConn right now is coming off of a, a regular season in which they finished 500 and won a bunch of games at the end of the year and did it with a largely injured cast of characters. I mean, the top three running backs, the starting quarterback, and the top two wide receivers on the depth chart didn't really play at all last year. And so this UConn team was still able to figure it out. So I do think that brighter days are ahead for UConn, but the fact that they're a Division I um, independent chase makes it interesting because it's not as if, if you're in a conference and you kind of have a, a pulse for eight of your 12 games every year and you can go, okay, I think we stack up well against this team against this team, but every week you're playing somebody new. So the season opened September 2nd this year against NC state. And they were a, a team that blew the doors off UConn last year. Um, and it's, I think anyone's guess whether they're going to take a step forward, take a step back. And that's really true for the entire schedule that just looking at who UConn's got coming up next year, you just don't know week to week how the dust is going to settle on your opponents. So, you know, you could play well and finish four and eight in the regular season. Or if you've got an independent schedule with 12 teams and things break the right way, you know, based on nothing of your own doing, you could finish nine and three just because you, you know, five years ago set a schedule that happens to be easier than you were expecting. So that's just a long answer to say that, um, I think that a, a bowl game for the first time in a long time was a welcome sight for UConn yeah. fans. And yeah, just really ready to um, see what fall 2023 is going to look like. Yeah, it'll definitely be interesting. I'm hoping, you know, they do rebuild. Do you think there's a possibility that they can go to a larger conference here and not just stay independent and maybe trying to get into a conference and maybe that could rebuild the program? I don't see how they would if it wasn't, um, all sports. I just don't think we're we're just not seeing that in the college landscape that conferences want teams for for football only, especially, you know, Notre Dame, right? The the ACC during the pandemic brought Notre Dame in and brought them in as a conference member because they're membered in other sports. It's the exact opposite for UConn, where football is really not the cherry on top. Teams conferences would bring UConn in because they have a football program, but because of what it means to have the UConn basketball brand, both men's and women's in their conference. So I don't see UConn getting away with just being a football only um, member of any conference, unless you're talking the mid America conference and schools can, you know, I've seen it out there where, okay, UConn joined the mid America conference so that they at least have a conference affiliation in football, but the mid America conference would then, force UConn men's basketball to play two Mac schools every year. And the women's team would have to go on the road and play at a Mac school to bring in some revenue to those other programs. So there's a lot of ways that um, conference commissioners and athletic directors, David Benedict is UConn's athletic director, 
could juggle those things. Um, but frankly, with the way UConn's negotiated its football TV deal with CBS Sportsnet for all of its home games, uh, as long as as long as these mega conferences still have dates open in you know November December um, or late November when things are getting down to the nitty gritty, I think that's that's the only saving grace because uh, for right now UConn can still fill out a 12 game schedule and feel pretty good about it. Yeah. Let's transition over here to, uh, uh, to basketball. Cause you were mentioning the basketball program and how great they are. Uh, I just kind of want to focus on the men's here because I've now I've heard multiple people. I heard Jay uh, Bilas on ESPN say he thinks that UConn is uh, going to win it all, uh, which I was a little surprised by that knowing, especially that he's from Duke. So I'm surprised he didn't pick Duke to win it all. And instead picked us over Duke. And I have now heard multiple people that say UConn is going to get out of this West region. And I really do hope so. I'm rocking the UConn sweatshirt right now. And, um, you know, we'll break down really, you know, what you think, how far they'll go, but like, let's kind of start from small to big here. You know, UConn in our previous two March Madness appearances have blown away a great opportunity as a favorite, especially last year against New Mexico state, Teddy Allen dropped 37. Do you see Iona maybe picking up the upset here and kind of continuing this tradition, let's call it, or do you think this is a different UConn team? And if it is, well, how come? Yeah, the the Teddy Allen first round performance from last year, I think, should still be raw in a lot of people's minds. But I just think that there is no player on Iona that is capable of that. Um, Teddy Allen, you know, for a casual basketball fan, maybe they don't know who he is, but he was somebody that had shown the ability to to do that. And Iona is much more of a a team first. They'll press the heck out of UConn. If UConn solves the press uh, or isn't bothered by the press just because of UConn's height, I mean, you know, the, the Huskies, just by virtue of having Andre Jackson and Alex Caravan in a starting lineup, I mean, it, it's such a luxury against a smaller mid-major just to be able to, I mean, if you're getting into trouble at in the backcourt, it's not ideal, but UConn can just throw the ball in the air and Andre Jackson will go get it. I mean, that's, and that's just the athletic luxury and that's not going to work against better teams, but against an Iona team that is so cognizant of pressing and forcing turnovers, I don't see it giving UConn a problem. Um, and so I think we'll start there saying that Iona does not have, a player that I see going for 30 plus points against UConn. I don't see Iona's press, which is their bread and butter causing this specific UConn team trouble. They do have a hall of fame coach and Rick Pitino. And so I think that this Iona team could show a look or two that is different from anything they've shown on tape that Dan Hurley is going to be looking over tape all week. And I think that he's expecting to be surprised by something on Friday, um, but I, I just I can't envision this upset happening. And that wasn't something I was saying last year. It felt like last year's team was a little bit more susceptible to that. This year's team, I don't think I see a 13 seed, especially that 13 seed um, yeah. knocking them out. And and I guess you know a, a 13 seed like Louisiana the raging Cajuns going up against Tennessee. I mean, they've got a former McDonald's all American who averages nearly 20 points, 10 rebounds, two blocks is a high motor guy is almost a slightly better version of a Teddy Allen. So 
if that was the matchup, I would be a little more concerned that they could just keep feeding this guy and and let him go to work. But uh, that's just a little different for me and what I see of this Iona team. You did mention Andre Jackson. I just thought of this off the fly because he's that kind of player where he's such an interesting player because I don't think he's a role player, but he's also not the Sonogos or the Jordan Hawkins. And we'll break down those guys. But like, I personally think he may be, he probably not the most important, but I think one of the most important players on UConn, because if he doesn't get into foul trouble, if he controls the basketball, he could really be talented. What do you think he really needs to do? Um, to really help this UConn team because he's a very inconsistent player. But what do you really think is his main thing that he needs to work on so that he could really be a consistent player on this team? If he hits an early shot in the game, that's huge for both his confidence and what it does to the opposing defense because UConn has seen over the year that if if Andre Jackson misses a shot or two early, the defense will sag all the way back. And I mean back into the paint even if he's standing at the three-point line. So him just being able to keep the defense honest is important. And what you're saying about him being the most important player on this team, I fully subscribe to that. Um, you know, in the game against Marquette, UConn loses by two because in the Big East tournament semifinals, and Jordan Hawkins was one for nine from three. I think the bigger issue was that Andre Jackson fouled out and only played 15 minutes. I think if you're telling me, I mean, obviously if Jordan Hawkins goes three of nine from deep, then UConn wins. But I think the bigger issue is you need, you need Andre Jackson out there for 30 minutes because in those extra 15 minutes chase that he's on the court, I don't know what he's going to do. I don't know if he's, if it's going to be, Oh, he's going to get eight more points or, He's going to grab six more rebounds or one of those things, both of those things, none of those. But just him being out on the court changes the responsibilities of everybody else because of what he's capable of through athleticism alone. And that's worth its weight in gold. Yeah, it is. And we saw, and I think uh, what you said about Marquette was a great example, how he did foul out in that game. But then we saw a completely different Andre Jackson against Providence, who I think was one of our best players in that matchup and really was a key reason uh, why uh, we were able to hold on and and be Providence and also get off to that uh, early start. So, yeah, I think Andre Jackson is definitely an important player on this team. But I remember when we spoke a few months ago, we were talking about Donovan Klingon. Because this guy is gigantic and he has such a talent. Um, you know, what really, you know, what really is his talent? You know, what do you really think is his potential? And then kind of a two-part question. Do you think Sonogo is under some pressure to possibly see Klingon steal his starting spot? Maybe not in this postseason, but kind of for next season? I think that for Klingon, um, for a guy who comes in at seven foot two, who played public high school ball in Connecticut that nobody could have expected this out of him. And his backstory has been much written about with his mother dying of breast cancer and him just wanting to be around and not have to go off to prep school and and do all of that. Um, that family is super important to him. One of the reasons why he's with UConn, um, just being a Connecticut kid, loves just loves the program. So, you know, for, for him, I'll say that coming in at 7-2, um, and being a definitive post player, you know, he's um, not going to stretch the floor on you at 7-2, at least not with his current skill set, that there is a less and less spot for him in the pro game um, with his current skill set. And so I think that 
I was expecting to see Donovan Klingon come in this year and expecting to think, okay, this guy will be serviceable for four years. And that's not what he's going to be. He is going to be an absolute game-changing player whose athleticism, ability to run the court, skill set, touch, all of it, hand-eye coordination, that he is one or two tools in his toolbox away from really impressing NBA scouts. And so um, I don't know if that means UConn only gets him for two or three years, but boy, he is somebody that, like you said, at times looks like he should be challenging the preseason biggies player of the year, Adama Sanogo for that, that starting spot. Um, I I actually just think that next year, um, I mean, Adama Sanogo is not an NBA center. He's a junior. If he comes back as a senior year, I think the best thing that he can do is show that he can play alongside Donovan Kling in, in a four role. And we've saw we've seen Sonogo stretch the floor, knock down some threes this year, add that to his game. And if he's able to do that and show that part of his repertoire, um, and UConn can conceivably have a seven-two center alongside Adama Sonogo. Um, you know, it hasn't looked great when those two have been on the court together this year. It hasn't been a whole lot of sample size, but if they can get that working next year. The sky's the limit for the team, but individually, it, it will really show what both of those guys are capable of. Absolutely. We're talking about big guys. Let's transi- transition over to guards because UConn does have some guards, but more particularly Jordan Hawkins, who is just an incredible talent, may even be a lottery pick this year. And if you look at UConn history, it's really crazy how much they've really relied on guard play. In 1999, it was Rip Hamilton. In 2004, it was Ben Gordon. In 2011, of course, it was Kemba. He, he had so many moments in that in that run. And then, of course, in 14, Shabazz Napier. And, you know, they're probably going to need another guard uh, that can score the ball and really be a leader. And it looks like Jordan Hawkins is that guy. Do you think he is that guy? And, you know, what does he really bring to UConn that could make him a lottery pick type guy? Yeah, I- I think we've seen enough consistency out of Hawkins. Obviously that one for nine performance against Providence or against Marquette after coming off the heels of the Providence game. Um, I think that's a cause for concern only in a slight way. in in the sense that I don't think we're going to see the best version of Jordan Hawkins going for 20, 24 points, six straight games. If UConn is able to make a run to the national title, like Jay Billis seems to think, um, I don't think it will. I don't think we'll get, 20 plus out of Hawkins every game. It's going to be, there's going to be a game where his shot's not falling. And that's, you know, shy of Steph Curry. Um, guys don't hit every shot. They're going to take every single game. And so for Jordan Hawkins, there are going to be games where he wants his three to fall, maybe settles for a jump shot more than take it to the rim. And so for, for Jordan Hawkins and for UConn, I think they're just going to have to accept that reality and find another way to win. And they've got that depth. They've got the ability to to change up their looks on days. I mean, again, number six team in the country, Marquette. Hawkins barely does anything at the offensive end, um, and they lose by two. So that's as encouraging a loss as UConn could have suffered in the Big East Championship just because of, of what we saw um, out of Hawkins or lack thereof. But in terms of the most recent lottery pick for UConn, that'd be uh, James Booknight. And obviously Booknight's a guy who was super athletic when he was taken by the Charlotte Hornets. I saw at the beginning of the year that different websites that are fairly reputable with mock drafts were 
we're slotting Hawkins in a, you know, number 20 position. And I just didn't see it. I don't, I don't know how in my mind, I, I couldn't take last year's performance from Hawkins and think, Oh yeah, this guy's an NBA guy. And then you saw him play this year and I, I don't see how he's not. He's just got such a pure shot and touch and it's a quick release. And, um, you know, every every color analyst that's watched UConn this year, former coaches, they rave about his shot ability. And I, I think that to the naked eye, it's it's really impressive. So this might be the last run of games that UConn gets to see Jordan Hawkins. I, I feel fairly confident in that. And it's just a matter of whether UConn gets to see him for six more. What I love about Hawkins is he's not a ball hog, but he also has this mentality of when he's on, everybody move out of the way. It's my turn. Get me the ball, and I'm going to put it in the hoop. And to be able to have that kind of guy and to be able to watch it this many times, and I think that's one of the reasons, forget just winning, why I want UConn to go far. I want to continue to see this guy, you know, in in blue, uh, wearing UConn colors because he really has such a special talent, and it's so, so amazing to see him play game after game after game, it truly is incredible. But I think something that this UConn team has that they really have never had under Dan Hurley is this is the deep. This is the deepest team they've ever really had under Hurley because they have so much depth. Guys like Alex Caravan, Donovan Klingon as, as freshman. You got Joey Calcaterra, Tristan Newton, and Naeem Alani. Alani. So you know, out of those kind of guys, and if you think of someone else, that I wasn't thinking of really off the top of my head. Who do you really think is the most important kind of rotational player? for UConn if they're going to look to make a run behind Sonogo, Hawkins, and then, as we mentioned earlier, Andre Jackson. Yeah, and it is funny that you you didn't mention a guy in Hassan Diara, right? He started that Providence game because he's such a defensive stalwart, and he's not expected. He's a transfer from Texas A&M, and um, just another – but like you said, I mean, UConn goes 10 deep. When they are playing well, That that's what they're capable of, and – um, they're they're at their best when when ten guys are firing on all cylinders, and so I I, I do really, um, you know, guard wise, I, I think when Tristan Newton is feeling comfortable distributing, that makes him super important, and I think on days where Alex Caravan has to be honored by defenses, that makes everybody else just so so dangerous because Caravan really is a guy that can step out and knock down a three. And I think that for every every three that you want Jordan Hawkins taking, um, at this stage of the season, if it's Alex Caravan who's open taking those threes, UConn should be happy with that. And just a guy that's shown up with clutch jump shots. And so I, I gave you two answers. My answer is Alex Caravan. I, I just think he's going to be an X factor. He's a freshman, but he um, – came to UConn early last year and was a practice teamer for the second semester. So he was on the bench. He saw that loss to North uh, New Mexico state and was just, you know, he, he is a freshman, but he can appreciate the emotion that goes into what March madness is all about. And someone who himself grew up a college basketball fan, filling out brackets and, you know, not just a guy who played, but who loves this time of year. And he wants to be a big part of whatever UConn's got in store. Absolutely. I'm pretty sure Caravan is shooting about 40% from three. So as you mentioned, when his shot is on, it is on. And there's something about Newton, and I did read this. I think UConn is 12-2 and two, uh, when Newton puts up double digits. When he is comfortable, he is really a key piece on this team. Um, absolutely. And then he's the first UConn player ever to have two triple doubles in a season. So, uh, you know, that's definitely something right there. Um, you know, 
something that was concerning for me when I was picking my bracket and having UConn go pretty far, something that was still concerning to me is how we've closed games this year. Because in a lot of these close games, games like Marquette, games like Xavier twice, games like that one at Creighton, and uh, I'm sure there's more that I'm just not thinking of, the Huskies really haven't been able to close it out. They have one win, six or less points, and it was by six points. I'm pretty sure it was to Georgetown. So are you concerned a little bit that in all of the opportunities UConn has had to close out tight games against very good programs that they haven't been able to do it? Uh, yeah. It, you know, I, I, I'd love to find the silver lining, and I'm usually pretty good at it. Um, but I think that when UConn was doing its best earlier this year with that 14-0 start to the season, they were winning every game by 10-plus points. They were just blowing teams yeah. out of the water. And so then you see the quarterfinal game against Providence at Madison Square Garden, and they're up 26 points. And then all of a sudden, it's a two-possession game just a couple of minutes later. So uh, I don't think that the the ghosts of that have quite escaped UConn and their fans and their players would love it if, they would uh, stop looking over their shoulders and just, you know, finish out. I don't even know what the spread is against Iona. Um, Nine what and a half, pro- something like that, yeah. Yeah, okay. That's I was going to say 10 and a half maybe is what they opened at, so it's down to nine and a half. Uh, I think if you win by 10 over Iona in a matchup of a four versus 13 in the first round, I don't know if that's swagger-inducing, confidence-inducing. I think that UConn wants to go out there and just get a 20-point lead just after oh. half and just keep it so uh, i i do think that if they win against iona style points in terms of their confidence is going to be huge just that if they can get a win over iona but look like the best version of themselves the version that dan hurley after the pc game said for 30 minutes we were the best team in the country and then for eight of those minutes after that we were just about the worst i mean that's that's what I think you need to go and try to play 40 minutes as close to the best version of yourself as possible. Getting a win, yeah, that's one thing, but getting a win and and kind of puffing out your chest in the process and and feeling like you've got a chance to win several more games is uh that that's really going to be key. Yeah. Before we do get into uh what your prediction will be with UConn cuz I do want to save that to the end. I got one more question before that for you. Um you know, as an aspiring broadcaster, and I asked and I asked this question, I'm not kidding, to every broadcaster that I have talked to, that I have interviewed, because it's just so important to me. As an aspiring sports broadcaster, what would be your one piece of advice you would give to p- kids like me that are not just me, but all around the world? Yeah, do, do as much of it as you can. Um, as we talked about at the beginning of this, that opportunities to just, I mean, my my training ground was on PlayStation 2, All-Star Baseball 2004, MVP 2004, baseball. I mean, that, that's what I was playing and calling games. And um, I, I think that the more you can just sit and watch games as well and absorb what the commentators are doing and saying, you can then apply it in your own broadcast. And obviously, Chase, you're somebody who's gone out and taken the initiative to do different creative projects like this podcasting, you know, you have gone out and created opportunities for yourself at your middle school to do basketball play-by-play broadcasting. And the, the opportunity is there. Um, You know, everyone's got a cell phone these days and 
you can record a pretty good demo just sitting in the bleachers somewhere and and talking into your phone and go listen back to it and see how you did. Um, so for me, when you're starting at that age of middle school, high school, and you think that this is a pursuit that you want to undertake, just start doing it because, you know, colleges are set up to to give you great opportunities, student radio, student television, each place has its own different unique setup um, and being as invested and, and kind of work through as many kinks as possible by the time you get to college and get to go to, you know, whether it's Syracuse, Northwestern, a UConn and start calling games for your school um, that you, once you get there, I mean, you, the work that you do in middle school and high school will, will set you up to have as much fun as possible when you get to college. Cause that's what this is. This is just the best. It's just fun. Yeah. And trust me, I know it's fun. Thank you so much for that. I take every single piece of advice and I, and I use all of it, you know, cause you know, these are people that are actually there. So I'm trying yep. to get them too. Uh, but last but not least, I'm sure everyone is waiting to hear uh, what do you think UConn can do and what do you think they will do if there is a difference there? So uh, they're, can and will do. Uh, I think that they're a national championship contender. Um, I'll I'll defer my own biases, of which, of course, I am part of the UConn Sports Network on radio, and uh, my biases tell me that this is a team that looked like the best team in the country. They blew out Alabama on a neutral court. Um, you know, that's the the best win over a one seed that any team in the country has, um, whether that's Purdue or Houston. I mean, you, you look at those four schools that are all on the one line, UConn's blowout win over Alabama was the worst loss suffered by any of them. So that should tell you what UConn's capable of. This is the same team. There are no injuries. Um, and again, uh, if you got Jay Billis singing your praises, that's great. The analytics bear that out. UConn, Right now, um, before play begins, they are the fourth highest percentage team to actually win the national title um, based on standard analytics. So uh, they're about top 10 to reach the final four out of the 68 team, but they are top four to win the national title along with Alabama, Houston. And interestingly, Gonzaga is also um, third on that list and UConn is fourth. So two teams out of the same region that aren't one seeds are also projected to have a good shot at this thing. Um, so I guess all of that is to say that, uh, you know, in my, in my projecting of this path to the final four, I think that it, Kansas is good. They're the one seed that UConn will be up against. Um, I don't, I don't see, I do see UConn beating St. Mary's or VCU, whichever team you decide to pick there. And then I don't see Kansas losing in the second round. So I do think that UConn and Kansas are going to have a really interesting matchup in that Sweet 16. And But that's, that's what it comes down to, Chase, is once you get to the Sweet 16, you could be Houston, you could be Alabama. And even in the Sweet 16, if you're facing off against a four or a five seed, you're still only a 60 40 favorite to win. I mean, you know, if you get lucky in the sweet 16 and you've got a double digit seed that sneaks through and okay, you can exhale a little bit and, and have an easier matchup. But I mean, when you get to the sweet 16, one versus four, doesn't matter how good the one is, doesn't matter how bad the four is it, that four still has a 40% chance to win on any given night. And so I think that that's what needs to be remembered is 
Sweet 16, Elite Eight, Final Four National Championship game. You've got four games that are basically coin tosses. No matter who you are in the country, you've just got to win and figure out a way to win four really close, hard-fought games. And that's what keyed UConn to a national title in 2014. And 2011, they were able to figure it out. And I think that UConn has enough backups in terms of backup plans where if a Sonogo isn't hitting, then you've got a Hawkins and a Tristan Newton and you can get some threes off the bench. And okay. So if Hawkins isn't hitting, you can still compete with one of the top eight teams in the country in Marquette, um, a two seed and bring them right down to the wire. And I think UConn knows that that version of themselves that lost to Marquette, it could probably get you to the sweet 16 and then they need to be a little bit better than they were in the semifinals in order to get it the rest of the way. But, They've shown those highs and they've shown them for weeks on on end. And now they just got to come up with three weeks worth of good play. And we could be talking about another national championship in stores. Oh, would I love that? Would I love another national championship in stores, Connecticut? <laughs> but what's really interesting is that, you know, Ken Palm rankings, five of the time you mentioned again, Gonzaga, that other team, that is actually my pick for the national title, Gonzaga. Um, but you know, that other team, that West region has five of the top 11 teams in Ken Palm rankings. Like that is going to be a very tough region. And I may add even teams like Arkansas, even teams like VCU, you can't count those kind of teams out because they could make a run and maybe even make some upsets throughout this tournament. So I really think that is the best region. I think the winner of that region, whether it's Kansas, Gonzaga, UCLA, UConn, or if another team surprises and kind of gets in there, I think the winner of that conference is going on to win the national title. I think well, if they've proven to go through that conference, they can do it. Yeah, and I mean, for for UCLA, I don't want to discount UCLA besides the fact that they, they have a lot of injury questions now that need to be answered. Um, I think that the UCLA with UNC Asheville – in their opener and 15 seed, I think they've got a relatively easy draw with the 7-10 game right after that. So I think UCLA is going to have two weeks from being injured in that Pac-12 championship game against Arizona. I think they've got two weeks to get Adam Bona healthy um, and just sort of figure figure out what their plan of attack is. Mick Cronin, he's a heck of a coach. And again, they, they're, they're going to have an easier route to get to that potential matchup against Gonzaga in the Sweet 16. They will. Absolutely. But uh, yeah, I think we are going to wrap it up here. Um, you know, I hope UConn wins it. I hope these analysts have heard two analysts, maybe even more today. I can't even keep track of actually people that are saying UConn's got a shot and can really make a run at this national title. And I'd love to see it, but it does seem like they do need to click on all cylinders. Um, because as you said, if Hawkins isn't clicking, even though they could still be a, a competitive team, if they want to win it all, they really have to click on all cylinders. So um, yeah, I think we are going to wrap it up here. Adam, thank you so much for this interview. I really do appreciate it. And thank you so much for helping me. You guys probably don't know this, but he was helping me throughout my entire basketball season to make sure I was uh, I was sharp and ready to go for all my uh, for most of my games. So uh, Adam, thanks so much for uh, all that you've done, and of course this interview. And um, yeah, and of course, would, ha- would love to have you back on sometime. Two weeks when UConn's getting ready to play in the final four, we'll, we'll schedule that. I'll be back on, all right? Absolutely. That's what we'll do. All right. Adam, thank you so much. <laughs> we are going to wrap it up here. Hope you guys did enjoy. Subscribe, follow, share, view. We'll see you next time. We out!